You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we have a number of readings. First we have a scripture reading from Acts 2. And then we have a couple of readings from the Belgic Confession. We'll be looking at Articles 7 and 32. But first let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 2. Where we'll read verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's also turn now to Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. This article has a title, The Sufficiency of Holy Scripture. And here we confess from the Scriptures. We believe that this Holy Scripture fully contains the will of God and that all that man must believe in order to be saved is sufficiently taught therein. The whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in it at length. It is therefore unlawful for anyone, even for an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in Holy Scripture. Yes, even if it be an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul says, Since it is forbidden to add or to take away anything from the word of God, it is evident that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete in all respects. We may not consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with the divine scriptures, nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees, or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God, since the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and lighter than a breath. We therefore reject with all our heart whatever does not agree with this infallible rule. As the apostles have taught us, test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Likewise, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now we also go to Article 32. The title here is The Order and Discipline of the Church. We believe that, although it is useful and good for those who govern the church to establish a certain order to maintain the body of the church, they must at all times watch that they do not deviate from what Christ, our only Master, has commanded. Therefore, we reject all human inventions and laws introduced into the worship of God, which bind and compel the consciences in any way. We accept only what is proper to preserve and promote harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, discipline and excommunication ought to be exercised in agreement with the word of God. This afternoon, we're considering the truth of God's Word as summarized by the church in Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught, not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Beloved congregation, Jesus Christ. In his sermon last Sunday morning on Lord's Day 34, Pastor Vischer mentioned the biblical teaching that we were created for worship. People, whether they're believers or not, are always going to be worshiping something or someone. Our calling as Christians is to worship the one only true God and to worship Him only. The most important thing we do in life is to worship and serve Him. Well, today we begin looking at Lord's Day 35. And if Lord's Day 34 deals with the who of worship, Lord's Day 35 goes on to deal with the how of worship. The first commandment tells us that we are to worship God. The second commandment tells us how the true God wants to be worshipped. So today we're going to begin a mini-series on that topic. Today we're going to explore the question of how God should be worshipped in church, in our corporate worship. And next Sunday we hope to look at the practice of family worship. And then the following Sunday we'll conclude with looking at personal, individual worship or devotions. And those last two, family worship and individual personal worship, will tie into our home visit theme for this year, which is improving worship in our homes. It's often said that all of life is worship. And that's true. There's little question that we have been redeemed for a life of service to God. And that extends far beyond what takes place for two or three hours on a, on a Sunday morning and a Sunday afternoon. However, the Bible teaches that there is something special that happens when God's people are called together for public worship. In Matthew 18, verse 20, the Lord Jesus said, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. God is present in the midst of believers gathered in his name, gathered for worship. He's present in a way that he is not otherwise. Just as God was present in a special way in the most holy place, in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple, so he is also present Today, in a special way, when God's people are gathered together for public worship. 
First Corinthians 5 verse 4 speaks about the church services in Corinth. Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. The power of Jesus Christ is present when we are gathered in his name as a congregation. All of this means that corporate public worship has a unique character that's quite different from the everyday service that thankful believers offer up to God. And because it is unique, because it is special, we need to think carefully about what we do and why we do it. And if that isn't enough, Hebrews 12, 28-29 tells us that our thankfulness should result in worship that is acceptable. Worship that is carefully done with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. So this afternoon we're going to look at three basic principles for Reformed worship. And then we'll also briefly look at the elements or we'll look at the parts of the worship service, or some of them anyway. The goal here is to have us see why we do what we do when we gather twice every Sunday. And speaking about differences between churches, people sometimes will talk about things like worship style, as if the manner in which God is worshipped is simply a matter of taste. You have your taste and I have mine. But is that a biblical way of looking at corporate worship? Well, let's see if we can arrive at an answer to that question through the course of this afternoon. We need to begin at the beginning with what's most important to God. We could call this the principle of a right heart. The first and most important thing is that God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts to be right with Him. In the time of Isaiah, the people of God had all kinds of feasts. And those feasts had been commanded by God. On the outside, externally, the Israelites were doing exactly to the letter what God had commanded. But there was a problem because their hearts were far from Him. Their hearts weren't right with the Lord. And this was reflected in how they lived. They said they believed in Yahweh, but they didn't love the people around them. They ripped off the poor. They made life hard for widows and orphans. I invite you to open your Bible with me now to Isaiah chapter 1. We'll read verses 13 to 17. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, who appointed those feasts? God. My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So everything else we learn today is important. But nothing is more important than being right with God. All of us sin, and our lives make us unworthy to be here this afternoon in God's presence. In verse 18 of Isaiah 1, which was our assurance of pardon this morning, verse 18, God gives the promise of the forgiveness of sins. And that promise was fulfilled in Christ. To be right with God, to be able to come into His presence and be blessed by His presence, we need to believe in Christ and trust in Him alone for our salvation. See, loved ones, even here, when we speak about our corporate worship, we need to recognize the call and the the central place of believing in Christ. Without His righteousness covering us, there is no blessing for us in public worship. In fact, quite the opposite. Public worship is not to be trifled with. We can't be flippant about it. As if it's just some social gathering of people with similar backgrounds and interests. Again, heed the words of Hebrews 12. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And the only way not to be burned by that fire is to come into God's presence covered with the blood of Jesus. So, on the one hand, we have to have our hearts right with God. We need to be converted. And then with thankfulness, we'll love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But on the other hand, just saying that we love God is not enough. We'll show our love for God in concrete, tangible ways. For example, we'll do what God commands us in worship. John 14, 15, the Lord Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And in 1 John 5, 3, we read, This is love for God, to obey his commands. And that brings us to our second principle of corporate worship, according to the Word. Now, the Catechism expresses this principle very concisely in answer 96 when it says that the second commandment requires that we are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. In other words, when it comes to the worship of God's people, only, excuse me, only God's Word can determine that worship. We can't add or take away from the Bible. The Belgic Confession, too, highlights the the connection between the sufficiency of Scripture and the worship of God's people. It does so when it, it says 
about the Bible in Article 7, the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in it at length. It is therefore unlawful for anyone, even for an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in Holy Scripture. We also read Article 32. We confess the same thing there. We may not deviate, can't turn away from what Christ, our only Master, has commanded. This principle is widely known as the regulative principle of worship. But it could more accurately be called the biblical or reformed principle of worship. Back in the 16th century, this principle was one of the main things that distinguished the reformed churches, not only from the Roman Catholics, but also from the Lutherans. The Roman Catholics believed and still believe that the church has always been free to add and to take away from what is commanded in Scripture regarding worship. The Lutherans, on the other hand, believed that if a given worship practice is not expressly forbidden in Scripture, then we're permitted to do it. However, the Reformed argued that we must only worship God in the manner which He has commanded in His Word, not adding or taking away anything. Really, this is just the application of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, to the area of worship. One of the classic passages that supports this principle is found in Leviticus 10, 1-2. Please open your Bibles with me to that passage. Leviticus 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, censers are things for holding incense, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu offered a fire before the Lord that had not been authorized by the word of God, by his command. Although the details of what they exactly did are are scant, it's clear that they attempted to add to what God had commanded. The result was that fire went out from Yahweh and destroyed them. One of the conclusions we can draw from this passage is that acceptable and God-pleasing worship is that which has been commanded by God himself. There's a reason why Deuteronomy 12.32 says, See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Now, someone might raise a question here and say, well, pastor, if that's true, then we should be offering incense, having sacrifices, and we should be worshiping God exactly the way he commanded in the first five books of the Bible. Not so fast. In the New Testament, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, we find that Christ has fulfilled and done away with the ceremonial elements of Old Testament worship. As God, he had the power to make those changes. People don't have that same power. We don't have that power. The bottom line is that while general principles can be drawn from the Old Testament, the particulars 
of how the New Testament church is going to worship are going to be drawn from the New Testament. One of those general principles is that we are to worship God only in the manner commanded in His Word, the regulative principle. And that principle is not only drawn from the Old Testament, from passages like Leviticus 10. In Matthew 15, verse 9, the Lord Jesus criticized the Jewish leaders for the vanity of their worship. The vanity of their worship was tied to ignoring God's commands and instead following what Jesus called the rules of men. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul likewise warned the Colossian believers against human commands and teachings, and he warned them against self-willed worship. So the regulative principle is taught throughout the Bible, before, by, and after our Lord Jesus. Now, as we reflect further on the implementation of this principle, putting it into practice, we need to keep in mind two sets of qualifications or further explanations. The first has to do with the different ways in which the Bible can command a given practice in worship. There doesn't have to be a direct imperative. You know, do this or do that. Sometimes Scripture gives us an example that we clearly ought to follow. At other times, we derive or we deduce a certain practice through what some have called good and necessary consequence. In other words, from a passage or a number of passages, we reason to the conclusion that this or that is what God wants us to do. That's the the first qualification. There's a variety of ways that Scripture can command us to do something. The second set of qualifications is an important distinction between what we call elements and what we call circumstances in worship. Elements are the things done in worship, the parts of the service. Circumstances are the incidental things that surround those things done in worship. For example, the singing of psalms and hymns is an element of the service, an element of worship. But whether or not a church uses an organ or uses a piano or uses Genevan tunes with the singing, those things are what we call circumstances. There can be flexibility with those sorts of things whether we have a morning service at 9.30 or 10 o'clock. That's also a circumstance. Circumstances are not governed by commands from the Bible, but by wisdom and discretion informed by the Bible. The regulative principle of worship applies only to the elements of worship and not to the circumstances. In a few moments, we're going to look at some of those elements that are commanded in Scripture for public worship. But for now, let's assume that the Bible does, in fact, give us a number of elements that should be in our worship service. How should we put it all together? How should those elements be structured? Well, here, too, the Bible gives us help. And that brings us to our third principle this afternoon, the principle of covenantal structure. 
principle of covenantal structure. Others have called it the dialogical principle. But because it's so closely tied to the covenant, I think it's important to reflect that in what we call it. So I prefer to call it the principle of covenantal structure. In all biblical covenants, there are two parties, God and his people. In the Old Testament priestly service in the tabernacle and temple, the priests, they acted as mediators between Yahweh and the people of Israel. At certain points, the priests, they represented God. At other points, the priests represented the people. Let's now turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 8. And there we'll read verses 1 to 5. point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth... He would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So in verse 5 here, we read that the tabernacle and temple service was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That means that this Old Testament service is like a mirror. It reflected something grander. And what that was was the mediatorial ministry of Jesus Christ. That ministry which also takes place today. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and his people, the one who intervenes and who facilitates the communication and the relationship of the two parties. For our purposes this afternoon, that means that biblical worship accounts for the covenant between God and his people. And it does so through a structure which reflects the back and forth of a covenant relationship. Through the mediatorial ministry of Christ, we are privileged to hear God speak to us. And we are also privileged in turn to be able to address Him. Now I want you to note that this principle also speaks of the unique character of a worship service. God is present and is speaking to us collectively as a congregation in this place. And we are collectively, as a congregation, speaking back to Him. Let me ask you, where else does that sort of thing happen? Nowhere. Only in public worship. Now from this principle of covenantal structure... We can move to divide up the different elements into those where God is communicating to his people and those in which the people are communicating to God. And we also arrange those elements in such a way that there is distinguishably a back and forth movement through the, through the course of the worship service. God speaks, man responds. 
God speaks again, man responds again. And so it goes on. In this way, it's clear that worship is about a relationship. A covenant relationship between God and his people. One in which the two parties are clearly on speaking terms with one another. So we have those three principles. Let's briefly review them. The the principle of a right heart, the regulative principle, and then the principle of covenantal structure. What I want to do now is explore the God-commanded elements of Christian worship. And we don't have the time to go into each and every one of them this afternoon. So I'm going to be selective. And if I've missed something that you have a question about, there are some recommended resources in the liturgy sheet. You can refer to those. I might also mention that in the near future, I'm going to have a 10-part series of articles in Clarion on this topic of worship. And those articles will go into a lot of this in more detail. So I'd also refer you there. Well, we read Acts 2, 42 to 47 earlier in the service. And in that passage, we see the church of our Lord Jesus right after his ascension. The church there gives us an example of what early Christian worship looked like, at least in its general contours. We find there that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Today, we still have the apostles' teaching. We have it in God's Word. And so we can conclude from here and also from other passages in Scripture that God wants us to read the Bible together in church, that He wants us to listen to its preaching and to its teaching. They also devoted themselves to the koinonia, to the fellowship of believers. Koinonia is the the Greek word for fellowship. And while this isn't an element per se, it's an example worth noting and following. What is this fellowship? Koinonia. Well, first of all, it's a positive attitude. A positive attitude towards and about God's people. And that attitude expresses itself in concrete actions. It's understanding that we can't be spiritual lone rangers, that we ought to love each other and we need each other, and so we we gather together. As Hebrews 10.25 puts it, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We love the fellowship of believers. We love being together, just as Christ loves being together with us. And we also read there about the breaking of bread. That seems to point us to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We want to share the bread and wine with one another, to spiritually eat and drink our Savior, to remember Him and to have our faith strengthened. The early church had the Lord's Supper as part of its worship, and we see that in 1 Corinthians as well. And so we'll naturally do the same. Acts 2.42 also speaks about prayer. We have the example of the early church to teach us that when we gather as God's people, we include prayer with our worship. Of course, that's something also, again, found elsewhere in the New Testament, passages like uh, 1 Timothy 2. God wants his church to pray. 
Now, it's worth spending a few minutes thinking about how we do that. Have you noticed that we maintain the practice of congregational prayer? The minister says, let us pray together, or something like that. And when he prays, he uses the first person plural. He says, we, and us, and our. I think this is a notable difference for many non-reformed churches, where worship leaders often use the first person singular. I, me, and my. We seem to be clear that when we pray in church, we're praying as a congregation. And we're not just listening to one man standing at the front praying by himself. So we pray as a congregation. But how do we do that in concrete, practical terms? Now, personally, I've often wrestled with that question because I've never been taught anything on that. So as I thought through it, at first I thought that perhaps I should listen to the words of the minister then wait for an appropriate pause, and then rephrase the words in my own mind and, then, and make them my own. There's two problems with that, though. First of all, the pauses. They don't always come. And by the time a pause does come, I've probably forgotten what the minister said. Second, with this approach... You're only praying as an individual in the middle of a group of people. You're a bunch of individuals praying individually. In other words, this is not congregational prayer anymore. There's got to be a better way. Well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't appear to teach us anything concrete about the mechanics of congregational prayer. The only thing we know is that it's quite likely that the prayers in the Old Testament... And that likely continued into the New Testament period. The prayers, like the songs, were said or chanted in unison. And taking our cue from that, we pray as a congregation. I think the best thing to do is to immediately echo the words of the minister in your own heart using the first person plural. We need to be self-consciously aware that we're not praying as individuals at that moment, but as a congregation. The minister provides the leading voice, and the congregation echoes that voice in their individual hearts. And I know that this is not an easy thing to master. Nevertheless, we have to discipline ourselves for the practice of congregational prayer, and we have to take it seriously. So Acts 2.42 and other passages indicate that the reading and preaching of the Word, prayer, and the sacraments are, are elements of New Testament worship. The singing of psalms and hymns, I mentioned that earlier, that's obviously another element of New Testament worship. We find that in passages like Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. We find evidence that the early church confessed its faith in passages like Romans 10 and 1 Timothy 3. But what about collections? I want to look at that briefly with you. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. 
And we'll read the first three verses. Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then I arrive, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Paul speaks here about a collection for God's people, something about which he had also instructed the churches of Galatia. Paul told them that when they gather for worship, they should bring an offering. Now, Paul didn't come up with this on his own. It had an Old Testament background. 1 Chronicles 16.29 says, Bring an offering and come before him. Likewise, Deuteronomy 16, verse 17 says, No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each one of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. When coming into God's presence, one should always bring an offering. It's a simple biblical command. The offerings are part of our worship. And if we neglect to bring something, we are refusing or maybe forgetting to participate in an important part of our worship. Now, I know that it's easy today to forget about having some cash or having some coins on you for the collection. More and more, we we live in a cashless society, what with uh, debit cards and so forth. I don't think you're going to be seeing debit card machines in our pews anytime soon. But in our church, we've addressed that in a different way. We've addressed that with a system of tokens. And if you speak with one of our brother deacons, you can buy a set of tokens. You don't have to worry about having money with you when you come to church. And whether we choose to use the tokens or whether we want to do it the traditional way with cash and coins, we all have to recognize that the giving of offerings is an act of worship in God's presence. And if that's so, we also need to carefully consider what we're doing at that moment. If it's an act of worship, if we really believe that, that it belongs in our worship service, God wants our hearts to be fixed on him. In Matthew 15, verse 8, the Lord Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, if surveying what goes on during the offering in an average worship service, we might paraphrase that. This people honors me with their money, but their heart is far from me. Many seem to view the offertory as a time for conversation. That sort of behavior doesn't fit with an understanding of the offering as an act of worship. Sure, the the organ may be playing, the minister may be sitting here silent. That doesn't mean that this is a time for conversation. Rather, it's still a time for worship where God's people should be actively focusing their minds and their hearts on Him. If you think about it, 
How are we responding to God in thankfulness when we're conversing with one another? Conversing about things that usually have nothing to do with the worship of God. Loved ones, I encourage you to use this time to reflect on God's blessings, both for yourselves individually and especially for the congregation as a whole. And finally, a word needs to be said about the difference between the offering that's taken for the needy and the regular voluntary contributions. Usually, the collections taken during the worship services are for the needy and for other worthy causes. For instance, this afternoon, we had the CRWRF. Worthy causes, where the compassion and charity of Christ are being shown through the deacons. The loose money that goes in the collection has absolutely nothing to do with the support for the church building, for the stipends of the pastors, for the heating bills, for the federational assessments, and so we could go on and on through all the different items of the church budget. That money, for all those items on the church budget, that comes from the regular voluntary contributions of the church members. Now, in our church, those contributions are made with envelopes. The envelopes are then usually placed in the collection bags. And even though they go in the collection bags, those envelopes, they don't end up with the deacons. They end up with the committee of administration. Those are the contributions that are necessary for the support of the church. And as an aside, if you don't have a box of envelopes, it doesn't matter whether you're a professing member or not, if you don't have a box of envelopes, please speak to your district elder and he'd be happy to supply you with one. Loved ones, we've covered a lot of ground in this sermon, but I trust that you'll agree that it's worthwhile because public worship is one of the most important things we do in life, if not the most important. Offering up praise and glory to God, the God of our salvation, should be the highest priority of all God's children. And no less should it be a high priority for each one of us to want to hear what God will speak and to witness the ways in which God will continue to show His power in our lives as He transforms us with His Word and Spirit. Reflecting on these things ought to motivate us and drive us to be more diligent in our worship, expressing our deep gratitude for all the riches we have in Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, without you, we are lost in darkness. Without your word, we stumble and fall. Without your Son, we would be your enemies. Without your Spirit, we would be dead. But we thank you for your presence, for your revelation, for the Savior you have given, for your Spirit who dwells in us. And we pray that you would help us with your Spirit to display our thankfulness in a life of service dedicated to you. Help us to express our thankfulness with our public worship each Sunday. May you be praised through and by us now and every day. We pray in Christ our Lord, our Mediator. Amen. 
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.